Okay, can you see that? Right, well, in our afternoon sermon series, we've been looking at the sacraments. The Lord has given us sacraments to set before us by signs the blessings that come through his saving work that he might strengthen our faith that we might receive those blessings better. Okay, we can receive the blessings without sacraments, but the sacraments help us to receive them better. We saw that there are two sacraments in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're appointed for us until Jesus returns. With baptism, we saw how God promised to his people Israel in the Old Testament that he would sprinkle clean water upon them and joined with that action that they would be clean. He made that promise in Ezekiel 36 in the days when he had driven them from the land and was bringing them back. He'd driven away because of their corruption and their idolatry. They were defiled and they were filthy because of their sins. And God was telling them that a great day of cleansing was coming, a day symbolized by baptism. That was the characteristic of the New Testament, isn't it? It's a time of cleansing by Jesus Christ who is crucified. Ezekiel said that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on Israel to bring them to repentance. So that's part of the working also of what baptism signifies, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would change their stony hearts, that they would love God and walk in God's ways. Jeremiah also spoke of this time and referred to it as the new covenant that God would make his people when, with his people when Messiah came in order that he would cleanse them. He emphasized that God would not only give them a new heart in that day, but also that he would forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. There would be complete forgiveness, in other words, that would actually be provided finally and definitively when Jesus Christ came. We saw that this great day of baptism came when Jesus came. That's when it began, when Jesus was at hand, when the kingdom of God was at hand. John the baptizer, Jesus' forerunner, called the people to be baptized in preparation for the coming of the one, he said, who was the Lord, the Jehovah, the one that would come in the name of the Lord. They were to come confessing that they needed to be cleansed by the Lord. And he told them to repent. John told them to repent and look to the one that was coming after him, whose shoes he was not worthy to, sandal strap he was not worthy to loose. The one that would be the Lamb of God, John said. It would take away their sins. And then Jesus did appear. And he died on the cross and he was accepted as an offering for their sins. He commanded his disciples to preach the good news of salvation in all of the world and uh, that he had come to save. And they were to preach not only to Israel, but also to the whole world. He promised that whoever believed and was baptized would be saved, but that whoever did not believe would die in their sins. Baptism was the sign that he gave to them in this age until he returns. It is a sign to show, again, that he cleanses us from sin when we come to Christ. Hopefully you remember that. I showed you that baptism represents cleansing and that that he does when we first enter his kingdom. It's what he does at the doorway. We can't come in to God's kingdom unless we are first cleansed, washed. 
It tells us that our heart has to be changed and we have to have the pardon of sin. That, that's God's testimony to us as we come in. It, he uses baptism to strengthen our faith. But as we move to our topic today, what happens after we have come in to his house? We've entered into his kingdom. We have been washed and cleansed. And now here we are. What does God do for us after we have initially come to Christ? Well, that's what the Lord's Supper symbolizes to us. In short, with the Supper, God shows us that as long as we remain in this world, we are continually nourished by Jesus Christ. So we're cleansed at the door, then we come in and we sit down at the table and we feed and we eat. We're nourished so that we can live the life that God has called us to live and so that we can continue to be cleansed by looking to Jesus, who is the one that cleanses us from all of our sin. Jesus' body and blood spiritually sustains us, as it were. So let's confess what we believe about the Lord's Supper from question 96 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and then we'll have our scripture reading. Question 96. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Our scripture reading to this is from related to this is from Matthew 26, where we have record of how our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. These are words that are familiar to us, of course, as we regularly come to the table and hear the words of institution. Matthew 26, 17, I will begin there. This is the word of God. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. See here how our dear Lord Jesus shows us what to do at the Lord's table. He gives us a pattern of what he wants us to do until he returns. The central action is the giving and receiving of bread and wine. It's distributed in a very simple manner, not in some kind of weird ritualistic way, to be eaten, to be drunk by Jesus' disciples. Jesus commands them to eat bread and to drink the wine as he distributes it to them. It is clear that the main concern is not to satisfy their hunger or to nourish their body or to satisfy their taste buds. Paul emphasized this point when the Corinthians had perverted it into a feast where some stuffed themselves and some even got drunk. He said to them when that happened, do you not have houses where you can eat and drink? That's not what you're doing at the Lord's Supper. That was a problem that arose in the early church and was corrected early on. There is a very simple dignity about this whole meal as Christ has instituted it. It's only bread and wine, not some kind of unique bread or unique wine, just bread and wine. Wine, which was the common table drink in their day. Probably wine mixed with water, which was the normal drink that they had at the Passover. It wasn't anything unusual. It was what they had at hand on the table. It was given with a view to represent something that was much greater than itself. So it's not the wine itself or the bread itself that's the focus or how it tastes, but it's what it represents that matters. Jesus tells us exactly what it represents with descriptive words. Of the bread, he says, this is my body given for you. And of the wine, he says, this is my blood, the blood or this is my blood of the new covenant. These words are to be spoken whenever the supper is celebrated because we need to identify what we're doing at the table. That's why we always have the word. The communicants and whoever else is present are to be told that this bread is the body of Christ and that this wine represents the blood of Christ. It is by those words that then these are set apart for that purpose because otherwise they're just bread and wine. And they're set apart then to represent what Jesus appointed for them to represent. He sets the pattern for us by declaring this when he's with his disciples here. This pattern is to be followed whenever we come to the table. This is why Reformed churches always insist that the word of God, the words of institution, are to be associated with the Lord's Supper. It's not like, oh, it's like if I eat this, then it will, it will help me. No, it's if I eat this with faith, looking to what it represents, it will help me. Not if I just put it in my mouth and it goes in my belly. That won't help me. So it's very important to have the word. There are several related actions that are also to be followed. You see that he prays over the bread and the wine, giving thanks for it. Now, that's very moving, really, to think about. Jesus, that very night, was going to be praying and preparing for his arrest. He was going to be arrested that very night and then delivered up to be crucified the next day. And here he is giving thanks 
for that sacrifice that was he was about to offer is, is he was dreading it in, in the way of the suffering that he would endure. He was thankful when he thought of what the sacrifice would mean for his people, for the joy that was set before him. We are certainly to follow his example of giving thanks. After all, we're the beneficiaries of his broken body. If he gave thanks for it, how much more should we? He did it for us. He was rejoicing because of what it would, how it would bless us. Should we not rejoice who are the ones that are blessed? You see that he also breaks the bread. Elsewhere, it is mentioned that he broke it and distributed it. This is part of the institution as well. In one of the Gospels, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. The point is that the body is broken in order to be shared by all the disciples. This was the common action by which a host would begin a meal in the culture that uh, this was done. The host would break the bread and distribute it to the people. We too then are to break the bread so that everyone can have some. And finally, you see that after they did that, they sang a hymn. This, of course, would have been from the Psalter, which was their hymnal. Very likely it was the great Hallel, uh, the Hallel from Psalm 113 to 118. And if you go through that, you'll see that it's very suited to the Lord's Supper. We won't do that now. But that's what they usually did sing traditionally at the Passover. Singing it is not necessarily a part of the celebration of the supper. I wouldn't say that you always have to do that. But it's certainly a good practice because you see that this is what Jesus did with his disciples. It's a good practice to sing after we receive the bread and the wine. So there you have what was instituted by our Lord for the supper. But how do we know that he wants us to continue to celebrate this supper today? How do we know that? Well, we know from our Lord's own words. How would you defend that? Well, if we look in, for example, in Luke 22, where he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's in the present tense, in the original language, which means to keep on doing it. Be doing this in remembrance of me would be a more literal translation or keep doing this in remembrance of me. Besides that, the very fact that he said to do it in remembrance of him doesn't make sense if it was only to be done that time when he was with his disciples (laughs) because he hadn't even gone away. He was there with them and he's instituting something saying, do this in the future in remembrance of me. He was still with them. It was to be done when he was gone in remembrance of him. But if there is any doubt that this was his intention, that it would be continued, the doubt is removed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He informs us that years later, after Jesus instituted this supper, that Paul personally as an apostle received instructions. He received instructions directly from the Lord about the Lord's Supper, which he passed on to the Corinthians and no doubt to others as well. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and then he goes on. Paul absolutely speaks of it as something that we are to do regularly when we come together and that we're to continue to do. He says, when you come together, then is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? Well, he actually says to them, it is not, you're, you're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper as a fault. 
he says to the Corinthians, you're coming to have a, a meal, a common meal, supposed to be coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. Besides this, elsewhere we have the example of the early church in the scriptures, that they came together on the first day of the week to eat the Lord's Supper. In Acts 20, verse 7, gathering to break bread on the first day of the week is spoken of as a regular custom that they had in the early church. At least at Troas, it's spoken of that way. Listen to the language of custom. It says, Acts 20, verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. So it's something that they customarily did. When they did it, when did they do it on the first day of the week? First day of the week was the day when they came together for that purpose. The subsequent history of the church also supports weekly communion on the first day of the week. The documents we have from the early days point to this as a regular practice. For example, Justin Martyr writes of it in 150, about 150 AD. But of course, the examples in God's word are the ones that matter most. And we see it there at Troas as something that was customarily done. It's important to know that the supper was instituted by the Lord. As we saw a few weeks ago, if he didn't institute it for us, then we shouldn't do it. God strictly forbids us to worship him in ways that we have invented. No matter how good our intention might be, he says in Deuteronomy 12, 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So that is a very, that, that's a statement that really fences things in, doesn't it? Don't, don't add anything new and don't take anything away. It's whatever is in the, 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 the framework of what God has said to do. If God did not tell us then to take some bread and wine and to declare that it represents God's Christ's body and blood and make it a worship ceremony, then we have no right to do it. Whenever the church makes up ceremonies like praying to saints or having Advent wreaths that they use, things like that, it has no authority from God. And we should refuse to do such things. We do not have to show that the practice is forbidden to exclude it because he says not to add anything. That means that if it's not, if he's not instituted it, we aren't to add it. He also says not to take anything away. But if it's not commanded, that's enough to tell us not to do it. There's no end to the silly ceremonies that men come up with if they're given the liberty to invent ways of worshiping God. You see all kinds of different things that are done in the name of of worshiping God. Our worship must be regulated by what God says. Knowing that our Lord has instituted the Lord's Supper not only tells us that it is okay for us to do it, It also requires us to do it. If he has told us to do it, then we need to do it. We cannot claim to be wiser than God and decide that it's something that we don't need to do anymore. I saw a report from one um, evangelical uh, ministry that was saying that the Lord's Supper was not something that modern people relate to very well. And so we didn't need to do it anymore, that we probably it was wise not to do it anymore. So you have that kind of error, too. Or they'll say, well, it's just not very helpful. It's not very useful, so we won't, we won't do it. So we're not to add, neither are we to take away from God's worship. And knowing that he instituted also has the benefit of helping us to receive it from his loving hand. He gave it to us, and that's important. It tells us much about our Savior to think that 
on the very night that he was betrayed. What I was saying before, it's a touching thing that he wanted to give us to supper, that he might encourage us with what he was, the great sacrifice that he was getting ready to make and be crucified for us. As Matthew shows, he knew that he was going to be betrayed that very night. Always emphasizes that in the institution of the Lord's Supper. His, he, he was facing a dreadful ordeal that's beyond comprehension to us. And yet he thought of us. He thought of all of those people through the ages that would be blessed and benefited and strengthened through coming to this table as he instituted it that night. He wanted us to remember and to understand what he has done so that we will continue to look to him. It is set before us what he has done so that we will look at what he has done and rely upon it. That's where our faith needs to rest, not in what we have done, but in what he did. So what does he do? The washing of regeneration represented in baptism and then the nourishing of our faith as we go on in the Lord. Now this brings us to the next thing that I want to look at, namely that Jesus instituted the supper to represent to us himself crucified as a source of our redemption. The central feature of the new covenant is his sacrifice for our sins. This is the blood of the new covenant, he says. The language he uses is that of sacrifice offered for sin. Look at verse 26 and 28 through 28 with this in view. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Keep in mind that when Jesus spoke that, they had the blood of the old covenant. The Passover lambs were being sacrificed at that time. And that was the blood of the old covenant. They had all the sacrifices and ceremonies, much blood that was shed to signify the need of atonement for sin. But none of those sacrifices were able to take away sin. So they, they had the, this is now the blood of the new covenant that shed for the remission of sins. It replaces the old. These were things, remember, that the disciples were quite familiar with. They didn't go to the blood of the covenant. What would he be talking about? You know, they were familiar, to, very, very much so to the people. From, from the time of Moses and even before, their people had been offering sacrifices and God had appointed, that God had appointed for them. Even on this very night then, as they were celebrating, they were thinking of that. Very familiar with bulls and goats and lambs. Jesus' disciples were also quite familiar with the term new covenant. The new covenant was the covenant that God had promised to establish with Israel when the Messiah came. And everyone in Israel was looking for the Messiah. They were looking for him to come at that time. I reminded you about that before. And remember that one of the promises of the new covenant was that there would be full forgiveness of sins. In the new covenant, God said that he would forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. It would be like the ceremonial forgiveness. It would not be like the ceremonial forgiveness of the old covenant where they had to offer the sacrifice again and again and again. The blood of the covenant of the new covenant was only offered once. And then there was a ceremony of remembrance, but not a doing it again like they did with the Passover. The lamb was offered year by year over and over again. In the new covenant, there would be complete and final forgiveness 
represented by the sacrifice only being offered once. So when Jesus talked about the blood shed for the remission of sins of the new covenant, disciples knew exactly what he was talking about, what these things were. The language then was crystal clear to them. Jesus says that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. His blood was to be shed as the blood of the new covenant. His blood was to be the blood shed for remission of sins. He was to be the sacrifice under the new covenant that brings this forgiveness. He was the Lamb of God offered once to atone for his people. Jesus was anticipating this, of course, in the time of he instituted it, it was still future to him. It was to occur at noon the following day. Jesus was establishing this memorial of his death to be observed in his church in remembrance of what he had done as the one that was offered for our sins. He is telling his disciples that they are to do this to remember him after he has shed his blood for their mission of sins. Just as they ate the Passover sacrifice to show that they were beneficiaries of that offering, so now they were to eat the bread representing Christ's flesh and drinking the, the wine representing his blood to show that they are beneficiaries of that offering. The language was clear and the in, intention was clear. But the disciples of Jesus were not so clear. <laughs> were they? They had not even accepted the fact that Jesus was going to be crucified yet. Even though he had told them repeatedly in plain language, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and the third day I'll rise again. And now here he was instituting right before their eyes a memorial for himself as the one being offered for sin under the new covenant. And this, this seemed preposterous to them. He can't be saying that. He can't mean that. That's the way we think, isn't it? It was kind of outrageous to them. But after he suffered on the cross, they had to come to terms with it because it happened. He did die on the cross. He did die. He was crucified. And after he was raised from the dead, then they came to perfectly understand these words and to rejoice in them. Both his words and that he would be crucified and raised again became very meaningful and significant to them. As well as his words that are spoken at the Lord's table that he himself was the offering of the new covenant, the blood shed for his people's sins. So everything changed in their perspective. Now, Jesus appointed this memorial for us to keep uh, in order that we might keep the cross central. Jesus crucified for us belongs at the center of our faith, and Jesus wants to keep it central. This is one of the reasons that he gives us this supper. This is of tremendous importance. Time and again, the church has forgotten this central truth that we're saved by his death. There are thousands who grow up in the church and who have never even once heard the real reason that Jesus died. I remember talking to students in university that had grown up in a church and for the first time they understood. Yeah, they knew they could say, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, but to realize that he was actually a substitute making atonement for our sin before God, that was a new concept. The liberal theologians and ministers that dominate the mainline churches will not accept this doctrine. They ridicule this very doctrine that Jesus says he wants us to remember and keep central. And because they do, millions are lost and enter into a, a crisis eternity without Christ because they have never been told 
the gospel. They know that Jesus died, but they do not know that it was for the remission of sins. That he became the lamb that was sacrificed. They're told that he was a special reform, a social reformer of some kind, or that he, he died for his cause because people opposed him and that we need to die for whatever causes we have or be able to live and, and sacrifice for whatever causes we, we're about. But, the, but these ones, are, the, these communicants are not told that he was set forth by the Father as crucified to atone for sin. They will not have a God that requires atonement. It is offensive to them, just like it was offensive to the Jews. So they still have this supper, but they don't explain what it is. They will not admit that our sin is so great that nothing but the blood of Jesus can make atonement. But my brothers and sisters, you who do trust in Christ crucified for remission of sins, you also sometimes forget what Jesus did. It's moved from the central place that it is to have. You do not cherish and live upon the the deep, deep love of Jesus that is represented in what he did for us. You lose sight of his grace and you become weary and discouraged and you question whether God loves you because of troubles that you're having in your life or something. You need to lift up your eyes and see what Christ shows you. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. You are to remember this and rest in this and rely on this and know that you are accepted of God on the basis of this alone. Nothing else could take away your sin and how effective the death of God's son is when it comes to taking away our sin. It absolutely does the job. There's no deficiency in Christ. Jesus wants you to remember each time you come to the table because it's so easy to forget. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. The shedding of his blood is the basis of acceptance under the new covenant. We are lost and only playing religion if we no longer have this at the core. What comfort there is, though, for you when you consider who he is. He's not just some man that came to die in our place. He's God's only begotten son, what we focused on this morning. He himself is the one who died. God's only begotten son. If he were only a man, even a perfect sinless man, then the sins of only one sinner would completely bury him under the wrath of God. He would not be able to deal with it. He could not bear the sins of one sinner any more than we can bear our own sins. It is because he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, uh, that he can atone for our sin. And it was he who shed his blood for the remission of sins. That's the reason there is full and complete forgiveness for all who come to him. He gives us this supper then to keep that complete forgiveness before us for our comfort and to keep us focused where we need to be focused. There is no place for guilt. There is no place for pride. There is no place for discouragement when we have Jesus crucified for our sins. He has shed his blood for our sins and made atonement for our sins. Our, our, so we then need to have faith in him. Keep your eyes on Jesus as crucified. Here is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. One sacrifice that will never lose its power. Consider further that at the table, Jesus presents himself crucified as the source of spiritual life for us. 
Okay, he's the one, the, the provision for our atonement and forgiveness. He's also the source of spiritual life. He invites us to eat and drink of that which represents his, him crucified to show that we are nourished by his body and blood. Not only do we have forgiveness, but we're nourished to live. He does not give us empty rituals, signs that do not signify what is real. If he appoints that we eat and drink of that which is declared by him to be his body sacrificed and his blood shed for the remission of sins, it means that there is a true nourishing that occurs when we look to these. A true spiritual nourishing of, that uh, from him is crucified that's represented by these signs. He does not deceive us with signs that represent things that don't actually happen, that we should not expect to happen. That means that there is some sense in which we are truly and actually spiritually nourished by him crucified. There is a strength that comes to us from his crucified body that maintains our spiritual life, just as eating regular bread sustains our physical life. It keeps us growing in him, keeps us walking in him and transforms us to newness of life, new repentance, new life. Theologians wrestle to try to understand how this nourishment occurs. But John Calvin once, as John Calvin once said, it's more important to know that it nourishes you than to know how it nourishes you. Isn't that true of your regular eating? Like to be nourished by physical food, you don't have to understand how it nourishes you. You just have to know that it nourishes you and you eat to be, nour- you, you eat to be nourished. Think, think about that you know, with our daily bread. We, have, um, we might have a little high school science that explains something about how our body breaks down the food and it gets into our blood or whatever, but we don't really understand it very well. It's just that we need to come and, and rely upon it. We have to eat. We do not know, but, but we do know that it is only by faith that we are nourished through Christ. And that's an important thing to keep before us. That tells us that the supper helps us by strengthening our faith. It gives us a visible representation of what God does so that by coming we can look to him for what is visually presented to us and presented to our senses. We, in other words, in eating, are looking in faith to be nourished by him. We can certainly be nourished in our faith without the supper, can't we? We can have faith and we can be nourished when we hear God's word preached and whatever. But we are nourished by faith whether we come to the supper or not if we have faith. But the supper makes our faith stronger so we can be nourished better. It helps you to receive the blessing better. Let's look at this a little bit. The nourishment we receive at the table is what the Bible calls communion in his body and blood. It is spoken about in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? To have communion with something is to have a share in it. If you have communion in someone's bank account, it means that you can draw money out of their bank account. You have a share in it. And uh, that's the kind of idea that we have benefits from what he did point here is that when we eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper, we truly marvelously partake of Christ's body and blood in a spiritual manner when we come with true faith. If the faith isn't there, then yeah, our body will get nourished a little bit, I guess, with bread and wine. 
but we're not going to be spiritually nourished. As I just explained, it is our faith that is strengthened as it looks to Christ for the promised blessing and nourishment of His body and blood. Christ meets us here and He says to us, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. And right then and right there, we eat and drink with faith looking to Christ. It's our invitation. He's saying, look to me for the blessing that I give to my people through my crucified body. Look to me for that blessing. It gives our faith something tangible that we can connect looking to him with. Actually eating the bread, actually drinking the wine, then our faith is to be active as we do that. It's not a magic power in the bread and wine itself, but a vehicle by which we approach the Lord. In John 6, Jesus declared that if we do not eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us from him. Of course, he was not talking about coming to the Lord's table per se. It is not eating a piece of bread or drinking a cup of wine in itself that spiritually nourishes anyone, but faith feeding on Christ is what gives us life. That's what the eating is. Eating is believing. He gives you this ceremony to encourage you that he is there to feed you. You will be able to keep on serving God because he gave himself for you and will nourish you as they who once as the one who is once sacrificed for your sin. So when you hear a hard sermon that calls you to live for God and you see your deficiency and you feel your weakness, don't go home despondent, defeated and discouraged, telling yourself that you'll have to try to do better, have to try to do harder, have to try to do more. Uh, that's no way to handle it. What does he want us to keep central? No, not, not, no, it is rather for you to look to Christ who died to give you life. You come, you do that, you can do that without the Lord's table, but at the table, he has given you the table as a help to set your focus in the right place. Not on, I'll try harder, but on Jesus Christ who was crucified and shed his blood for me. You're missing out every week if you come to the Lord's table without doing that. If you're just going through the motions. No, you come with hunger and desire for him to be blessing to you through his sacrifice. You see, and he offers himself to you as a believer to nourish you so that you can do the will of God. And to call you to come and feed upon him and rest upon him so that the guilt is taken away. Our Lord is so tender toward us at this table. He declares to us his death for the remission of our sins to reassure us of that complete forgiveness and to bring us to look to him in faith. He's saying, look to me as he gives it to us. He also presents himself for our nourishment and our growth. Constant supply is from him. Uh, He says, come and eat. As a loving husband, he takes the initiative to extend himself to us according to his covenanted love. Oh, how he loves us. It is an active, growing thing that he, the, the relationship to which he calls us. See that you receive him each time you come to this table. He's expressing his commitment to you. We will look at how to come worthily to this table next week, Lord willing, and we'll 
explore a little bit more about what it is to come worthily or not. Let's please stand now and let's pray and ask him to help us. Yes, Lord, we come to you as we have just heard your word in the way that the sacrament tells us to come. Not having the sacrament now, but we do come, Lord, looking to you as the source of our spiritual life. You who are crucified. And we ask you, Lord, to be that blessing to us that we need. To be the one who gives us what we need because you died for us. We pray, Lord, that we would take heart each week as we come to the table and that we would not go away as those who have no resources, those who have no provision. For that provision is presented to us in your grace, in your gracious institution. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear the gospel preached, that we would lay hold of Christ then. And as we come to the table, that we would lay hold of him even more. Father, thank you for thinking of us and for giving us these things to help us. We need them. People think sometimes we need them less in our day. We need them more in our day, if anything. We so often are distracted and we look in the wrong places. But we pray that this would help us to look in the right place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now sing Psalm 116c. 116c. Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. 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 And remember, I'll